Please pray with me. Father, please restless with our, wrestle with our restless sinners' hearts. Teach us to love you more fully, to become more like you, to be a blessing to the nations and to our neighbors. Continually shape us into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometime back, I was at an alumni event for Dort College And a graduate comes up to me and says, Aaron, don't you ever worry about me. No matter how hammered I get on Saturday night, I am always at church on Sunday morning. Congratulations. What do you say to that? Thank you. A wise guru of spiritual formation was telling the story about a new convert, a new believer to the faith who's beginning to practice these disciplines of the Christian life comes up to him one day and says, Pastor, you'd be so happy and so proud of me. For 49 straight days now, I've done devotions and read part of the Bible. To which the guru replied, then tomorrow your spiritual assignment is to not do devotions. Because if you're counting, we're going to end up with a problem here. Some of you will remember Scott Evans who came and spoke in chapel earlier from Ireland this semester. When I was driving him back to the airport, he was telling me a story about a conversation he had had with his father as they were talking about this constant conflict between these Christian factions of Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. He said there was a newscast taking place, and finally one of the newscasters actually interviews one of the men who's fighting and protesting in this whole exchange of of anger and violence between different groups of Christians and says, what do you think Jesus thinks about all of this? To which the man replied, what does Jesus have to do with it? It's our religion we're talking about. Really? There is something about the zeal within the Christian walk and the desire to do what is good and what is godly that can so often be just easily misconstrued and become about those actions themselves. Something good can become about the cause and not about Christ. We can get in the pattern and habits of of doing things in the name of Christ that aren't really even actually for him anymore, but become more about us. We've been walking all semester through the minor prophets. Today we get to Zechariah. There's 25 different men in the Bible, the name Zechariah, one of whom is most well known for losing his voice. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, and he's writing this book after the return of the exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He's the longest of all the minor prophets, and many would argue the most difficult to understand. The first eight chapters are a narrative, and then chapters 9 through 14 are this eschatological language. And reading again through it over and over this week, I couldn't help but think how much this book sounds and feels and reads like the book of Revelation. Then I read to find out afterwards, not surprisingly, after the book of Ezekiel, it's Zechariah that is most quoted and alluded to in the book of Revelation. Not only that, but the book of Zechariah is actually the one most quoted in all the passion narratives of the Gospels. There's something about what he is saying that is at the heart of what it means to understand the coming of Christ and all that that implies. I want to start with a passage 
in the middle of the book, in this sort of swing chapters of 7 and 8, which take us from the narrative into the eschatological prophecy. And you'll see what the focus of these verses are pretty quick as we get going. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Rejamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? And the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words of the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest, prosperous, and the Negev and western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words of the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. As this passage starts off, a man is sent from this entourage in Bethel to come with a question. And the whole passage then turns on this question that he asks. And we need to ask the question, why is he asking the question? Why would you walk 10 miles to go ask from Bethel to Jerusalem to go ask somebody whether or not you should still be fasting? What is this passage really about? And why is fasting so significant in this passage? This religious activity, why does it matter? In chapter 8, verse 19, as this conversation continues on, we find out there's actually two other months as well where fasting was taking place. From chapter 8, verse 19, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the fasts on the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, truth, therefore, love truth and peace. Here's what's going on. Here's what happened in fasting. If you can go to the next slide here. This is why these months become so significant. In the 10th month in 588 B.C., Jerusalem starts to fall under siege by Babylon. In the fourth month of the next year, Jerusalem's walls are breached and the leadership flees and leaves the city. In the fifth month, the temple, the temple is actually destroyed. The unthinkable in Jerusalem has happened. And in the seventh month, their last surviving kind of dignitary, the ruler, is assassinated. And he's gone. And so for each of these events that have taken place, that have embedded themselves in the collective memory of Israel, they fast during these times, during this month, to commemorate these things. Now, typically, fasting throughout the Old Testament is designed to accomplish one of two things. It either happens at a time when you're coming before the Lord and you're complaining to him about something. You want him to change his mind about something that's happening. You want him to notice your struggle and your suffering. So it's a form of petition, uh, a plea before God. 
The other form of fasting is one that's done in penitence when a prophet comes forward and says, you guys have all done this wrong. And in an act of repentance, the people fast, put on sackcloth, ashes, and it's a form of penitence, of repentance, of sorrow, and remorse. Now, what's interesting in this passage is apparently this has been taking place for 70 years. Well, why 70 years? When you fasted in the morning, the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Why 70? It's a famous passage from the book of Jeremiah they're referring back to. Many of you know this one. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So they've been gone for these 70 years and they're trying to calculate, right? Jeremiah said, when 70 years are done, we're going to be free of all of this. So they're kind of appealing back, like God can't go back on his word because when the prophet said 70 years, we've been watching the clock, we've been fasting during these months for 70 years. Zechariah, 70 years, time's about up. And there's a couple different ways that you can count this. If you put the next slide up, and this is typically how it's been done, two different possible ways of counting the 70 years of the exile. First, from 605 to 535, this is when the first people left to one time the first returnees come back from Babylon, exactly 70 years. Or from 586 to 516. In 586, that's when the biggest chunk of people were all taken in a second wave. And in 516, when the temple is actually rebuilt, sort of a sign of restoration of Jerusalem. So when they come forward and ask, walk 10 miles from Bethel to Jerusalem, to ask a question that has nothing to do with all the laws laid forth in the first five books of the Bible in terms of their religious practice, but these new things that they've taken on to mark these horrific events in the unfolding of Israel's history during the past 70 years, the question isn't really, should we still fast? The question they're asking is, is the exile over? Has God's hand now been pulled back from against us? Is it now for us again? And they're pulling on this claim, this passage in Jeremiah. Zechariah, priests of Jerusalem, is it over? Have we paid our dues? And the question then put back to them is, well, who really were you fasting for then in the middle of this time? Was this a penitent form of fasting? Were you sorry for all the reasons why the exile happened in the first place? Has it had its effect? Has it changed you? See, because I brought you back out of Babylon, but I'm not really sure you wholly came back. And we talked about this last week as well in the book of Haggai, right? Did the exile take? These people are sort of appealing to this promise from Jeremiah. But Zechariah does them one better. Sort of says, you think you know the book of Jeremiah, right? You're claiming this 70-year promise thing? Well, before the exile even happened, these are some of the things that Jeremiah talked about. From chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, 
If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Zechariah says, you think you know the book of Jeremiah and you're claiming the 70-year promise. Well, let me tell you why the 70 years happened again in the first place. You're not going to get off on a technicality here. Do you understand why the exile really happened? Because I, the Lord your God, am still not interested in just the religious practice and just going through the motions. Students of Dort College... There is a mark of maturity that takes place inside each one of us in the development of our faith. And this is what all of our parents and those who have raised us in Christian community have longed for. And they always talk about the language of when you make your faith your own, right? And the question really underneath all of that is, is not just will you go through the motions anymore. Will you go to church because it makes mom and dad happy? Will you go through the different Christian rituals and show up at a place like Dort College where they use all sorts of great Christian language and talk about worldview and all of these things? But the question is, is it, is it taking root a little bit deeper than that? Is it sinking all the way in? Because I know you can figure out the religious practices. I know you know the right things to say. You know the right answers on the tests. To peel back to the book of Jeremiah in verse 9 and 10, in this passage from Zechariah, listen to the words in particular that rise to the forefront. This is what the Lord says when 70 years are... I flipped back to the wrong passage. Here I am. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Justice, mercy, compassion... The mark of Christian maturity will not be whether or not we've figured out the proper routines and rituals to go through the motions. Hypocrisy is a learned skill. And you can get really good at it. The most dangerous part about it is it not only fools others, sometimes it actually fools ourselves. We believe that just because we're going through the motions sometimes that something, I don't know, justice, compassion, Mercy, these words that describe the character of God, Zechariah is asking, Jeremiah is asking, are these the words to describe the character not only of God, but of you? Not only can you go through the motions, can you do the religious activities, do you look like God to the rest of the world? And it's them whose question we need to ask this of, right? Verse 10, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, or the foreign, or the poor. And you could say, yeah, I don't oppress those people. But the question we need to ask is asking them, do you feel blessed by? Do you see those things among us? Do we look like that to you? Do we look like justice and compassion and mercy? Do we have the aroma of Christ? Do we have the likeness of God? Do we have the attributes of Yahweh just sort of coursing through us? It's unmistakable. People know who we are, not because we, where we show up from 9 to 10 on a Sunday morning, but because it's coming out of every part of our being. Because we aren't just justified, we are being sanctified and changed and then when people encounter you in life, they encounter the justice and the mercy and the compassionate love of God. That will be the mark. 
That's the movement from just going through the motions to the Israelites grown up. Have you gone through the puberty transition that was the exile and grown up now to own this faith, not just about the actions, but about a heart? When you graduate and walk off the stage and we give you a diploma to say you graduated from college, did you just learn the skills? Or are you taking on the character and the likeness of God. This is what will feed us and feed the world. It's what the prophets wanted us to get out of these passages. It's what the prophets wanted to see happen within Israel. It's what Jesus wanted to transform his people into. Justice, mercy, compassion. What do others see when they see you? Put aside all the routines and rituals for just a little bit. An incredibly close friend of mine and mentor in my life took 12 people into a home to live together for a year. They made one covenant together. One. They didn't set up all different rules. You'll do dishes on this day. You'll do laundry on this one. One rule to govern how they lived. They gathered together every night and each person had to ask everybody else, when did I look like Jesus to you today? And when did I not look like Jesus to you today? And that's it. Do we look like Christ to one another and to the world? Will you join me in prayer? Father, cover us. Dip us once again into your death and resurrection as we claim our baptism not just in terms of what we've been justified or called by a name, but Father, that we are truly being changed by you, that we're becoming like you. Father, dip every part of our being in your character. May those around us see you when they see us, not our Christian practices, not just the rituals we've learned to walk through. Be them as important as they are at different times in our shaping. But Father, may they have their desired effect. May we become like you, love like you, long for justice like you. May we be merciful like you and compassionate like you. Father, change us inside out. Amen. Please rise and receive a blessing the rest of the day. Children of the great and living God who have been bought at a price, may your actions be more than your actions. May they transform you from the inside of who you are all the way to the outside. May the world see God's character when they see you. And may they experience his love when they experience you. Be changed by him. In Jesus' name, amen.